This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest edition of My Liverpool Life. I'm your host Mo Stewart and it is my absolute pleasure to introduce one of this city's greatest sporting representatives and an absolute giant of the game of British basketball. As a player, coach, owner, cheerleader, probably even car park attendant for the Hemel Royals, who became the Hemel and Watford Royals, who became the Milton Keynes Lions and finally the London Lions. This man next to me is the embodiment of one of the most successful teams this country has ever produced in the game of basketball at home and abroad. He's also one of the best ambassadors for the game we've ever seen. Anytime someone puts him in front of a microphone, so don't let me down today. And he's definitely the best dressed. Uh, you only need to check out his, some of his outfits on the sidelines to let you know that. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Vince McCauley, welcome to the show. Uh, such a pleasure, Mo. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm glad because I've been trying to get you in the interview scenario for about three and four years. So I'm very happy to get this happening as well. But first things first, we need to talk about 30 years with the Lions has only just come to an end. I mean, have you had a chance to process it all yet? I mean, feelings of pride, maybe makes with a bit of sadness at the time. And- yeah, a bit of both, I think. A bit of everything, uh, even. Um, it's only been three or four weeks now, I guess, three weeks. Um, and um, I've been having people reaching out to me from all over the place, all over the place. I, you know, um, I'm humbled by, by, by the reaction to some pe- from some people. Um, so I guess it's going to take some time for me to process because obviously, you know, there's been a routine that I've gone through for so many years. Uh, every time you wake up, you know, obviously, first of all, anybody out there who runs their own business, every time you wake up, you've got to balance the books. Um, <laughs> then you've got to think about what it is that you're actually producing. And in our case, you know, sporting entertainment. Then you've got to think about competition and trying to win, trying to be the best in the country, the best in the world. So all of those things have to take a slight back seat now. So, you know, walking the dog is becoming quite a highlight. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, there's nothing, when you've had an intense period of work, there is nothing like doing something simple to just Absolutely. kind of remind you that these things exist in the world. <laughs> now, something you may have a little bit more time for now is football. And this oh, is a Liverpool podcast, so let's get straight into it. So let's rewind the clock. You were born here in Liverpool, but what were your earliest memories of the football club? Uh, at what point in your life did you become the supporter? Well, um, I think I had to be a supporter right from the day I was born, but based on my mom and my nan uh, in uh, in Old Swan. So, um, so yeah, I was, so I was born in Liverpool, but my my kind of childhood years and, and teenage years was actually growing up in Africa, um, mm-hmm. in Lagos, Nigeria. So my my nan used to send us a, a package. So she used to roll it up in, in this kind of tubey thing in a round in a brown paper bag, and it used to have the Liverpool echo. It used to have the pink. It used to have um, some sweets, you know, that kind of stuff. And we used to get that every fortnight. So I, I, I thought everybody got that. I didn't it just me. So that's how I fell in love with the team. But the big thing for me, I remember, and I'm not, I'm going to be sketchy on years now as time has passed, but I was about 13, 12 or 13, 14, I guess 73, 74, and we lost the final to Arsenal. Um, mm. I was sitting, the FA Cup finals, I was sitting by the pool listening to the radio uh, and Charlie George scored the winning goal for, for Arsenal. And and I was so gutted. And I remember thinking, I said, why am I so gutted? I haven't seen him play yet. <laughs> yeah. um, 
So, so that was where you know my early love for for the team came from. That's crazy though to think about that you were so close and yet so far away, and you, so you kind of had that feeling of both. And as someone who's done very similar, I lived miles away from here and supported the team from afar, and then came here. I was it was very much like I was a kid in a candy store when I arrived. But so, are, are you are you that the way now? Every time you oh, get a chance, oh, I mean, everybody knows you know hundred percent for me. Um, but of course, then of course, my first kind of interaction with the team. So, so um, nineteen August the thirteenth, nineteen seventy seven. Wow! I came back to Liverpool, right? And the 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 only reason, uh, you know, my motive. I came for school, obviously. That don't tell my mom and dad. But for me, the only reason was to come and see the guys. So, so um, I remember being picked up at Liverpool Airport um, by the taxi taking me home to my nan's. And, um, you know, he asked me, where are you coming from, lad? You know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, I'm coming from Africa. I'm coming to see um, Kevin Keegan. I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm ready. I've got tickets for the weekend. We're playing West Brom, you know. And the guy laughed. He said, oh, you just missed him. He's gone to Hamburg. And I'm like, <laughs> what? I only came to see Kevin Keegan. He said, yeah, we've signed some Scottish guy called Kenny Dalglish. <laughs> so that Saturday, I was in the cup, and I took a picture of Kenny Dalglish's first goal which was wow. against West Brom. <laughs> That's a, like, that, that picture will be worth a oh, lot of money. I've got that picture on my album. It, it's incredible. You know? I mean, I, dare, um, <laughs> I was going to say, I dare say you won't let it go ever. No, but no, it's definitely no, going to no, be worth no, something. No. So <laughs> when you came back to Liverpool around about teenage years, was that the time that basketball started to kind of work its way into your consciousness as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, everything was about football. Because of the outdoor life in Africa, I was a swimmer. So I, I tried getting involved in swimming. But my goodness, when you come out of the swimming pool wet and cold, I, was like, I wasn't used to this. So swimming was not going to make it. Um, so one, I actually went to um, do my A-levels at Paddington Comprehensive, as was. Mm -hmm. And um, I was about to bunk out of school about 3 o'clock early in the afternoon. I was literally climbing out of the window of the sixth form um, when this guy came running into the system, saying, hey, Vince, we need you, we need you. I'm like, oh, man, I'm trying to get home. What is it? He said, you've got to come and help us play in this basketball game. And I'm like, I don't play basketball. How can I help you? He said, well, we've only got four, and we can't start the game without five. I'm like, oh, man. So I climbed back in, and we went. And he said, Look, I'll show you how to put the ball off the backboard. This is what you've got to do, blah, blah, blah. So we played this game, and um, we won the game. Um, so... But I noticed during the game, there was this guy walking around the court every now and again you know, hmm. with a hat on. So at the end of the game, he came up to me and said, you know, fake Liverpool accident, accent, you know, you know, hey, lad, I've not seen you before. Where have you been playing? Blah, blah. And I said, playing? I don't play. I've, you know, I've been here six months. Um, you know, I'm just helping the guys out, blah, blah. He said, well, you've never played. I said, no. He said, well, you did very well. I said, I mean, obviously, I'm six foot five. It helps, you know, all that kind of stuff. He said, would you like to come and try out for my club? I said, okay, I'll give it a go. Well, that gentleman was Jimmy Rogers, you know, who everybody oh, knows from Texas, you know, who had the Liverpool ATAC team. So I went with uh, with Jimmy to practice. And six months later, I was playing for the England under under 18s, you know. And of course, Jimmy has been intertwined in my life, you know, rest in mm. peace, you know, right all the way through. And uh, and thanks to him, I, I found the game of basketball, which has, you know, showed me so many, so many things in so many parts of the world. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. 
course, Jimmy Rogers is an absolute legend of British basketball and known obviously not only for Liverpool teams, but teams down in London. Yeah. Of course, this was the golden era of British basketball in the 1980s. This is when the TV interest came, Channel 4 were getting involved, football right. teams like Manchester United and even Portsmouth were buying teams. That's right. Within the game, did you feel like this was it? This was good. Are you going to take the leap into the bigger, wider consciousness? Well, yeah. I mean, I think um, for us, you know, after obviously we, we, we then left from Liverpool and um, and, I, and I joined up with Jimmy to set up the Brixton Basketball Club. Um, and, I, and as you say, you know, Man United had bought a team. In fact, I think Everton were getting involved with, with, with a team. Um, and um, we, we, uh, Alton Bird was the guy that everybody loved to see and, and play. Um, but I think, you know, it was really, we thought we were there, but really, it was really just the laying of the foundations, really, because, mm -hmm. you know, facilities weren't, weren't that readily available. There weren't enough arenas in enough cities to make it that kind of, you know, razzle-dazzle show that people would want to see. Um, but it was laying the foundation for a lot of British basketball players, because then mm -hmm. we had a lot of British basketball players who went on to college in America, you know, John Amici from, from the Cheshire area, Carl Brown, uh, David Aliou from Liverpool, so many guys, um, you know, who went to college in the States, were successful in college, and then started coming back looking for professional careers, yeah. uh, you know, whether that be in um, in the UK or, or, or in Europe, you know. And I think that the trajectory was, was massive and, and really going well. But I think the big setback as a whole was Brexit. Uh, sorry, not Brexit, um, Bosman. Oh. I don't know if you remember the Bosman ruling, because what that meant was our British players were now the same as European players. So in countries like Greece and Turkey and Italy, where they, they pay astronomical wages, um, our players could be just the same as anybody else. All so I think the, the first season of Brexit, we lost our top 60 players right off the top. Can you imagine? You know, um, they all zero. Yes. That's like that's like five, like twelve. That's a league's worth of players. Yes, yes, literally. You know. Now, obviously, that then kind of um, dropped the the quality of our product. Um, and in response, the league decided to increase the amount of foreign players in mm -hmm. in uh, in the league to, to to keep the quality. Then, of course, you get a clash because obviously, you know, we're all for British players, British coaches. We want to be successful as British people. Um, so we went into a flux and and banged heads a little bit i think mm. um over those periods of time but but um but fortunately i think i think the game has survived and come through that now and, and we are in a new a new era now yeah i think we are and it's interesting when you think about the kind of success in the 80s kind of maybe plateauing a bit into the early 90s that's kind of what Liverpool Football Club were also doing. <laughs> we found yes. a very, very similar path to you. I mean, <laughs> in fact, it goes even deeper because obviously around the, that early mid-90s, it was around the time where you were transitioning from being a player into being more of a coach and side. And yeah. Liverpool have had some experience of doing that as well. When you think about Kenny Dalglish going from being a player to being the boss and then Sooness trying something similar with, well, less success. Yeah, so yeah. when you were doing it, were you aware of those things? Were you thinking about, well, I can take some lessons from what they did well and what they didn't do well? Yes, because, I mean, you know, you're always looking, you know, um, you know, for me in those days, it was a case of looking at teams like, firstly, from a basketball standpoint, I was looking at teams like the Chicago Bulls and the Los Angeles Lakers. And then obviously from a football standpoint, you're looking at, uh, at Liverpool and then you're looking at, the kind of southern clubs and how the southern clubs are, are, are challenging Liverpool. Your Chelsea, you don't forget Chelsea were nowhere. 
you know, yeah. and then all of a sudden they start coming through with, with Rule Hullet and, and people like that. <clears throat> so you're looking at that interaction. Um, and, you know, the thing about what I liked about what, what Liverpool were doing was I was beginning to look at some of the the homegrown players. You know, I mean, mm. you know, obviously when I first came to Liverpool, you're looking at the end of your Emmeline Hughes and, and people like that. And obviously Bosman, let's not forget, Bosman was a football ruling and affected yes. Liverpool as well. You know, it's only when we started... I think very cleverly looking at more of the Scandinavian type player. I think we started bringing your Jan Mobis and, and, and people like that. Um, that, that. That's where that transition took place, I think, for everyone. Um, but then, like I say, you, you start getting people like Carragher coming through. You start looking at, you know, you need your core local guys so yes. that whoever you bring in, they can transfer the culture. You know, whether it's DVG or whether, you know, whoever it may be now, you know, it's about the culture. Um, without that, you can't get a successful dressing room, a successful team that can mm -hmm. win in tough circumstances. And that's what I took from what Liverpool went through all those years. Mm. That core is really important. And when you think about it, I mean, without even almost realising, when you think about the transition from... Uh, Manaman and Fowler into exactly, Carragher exactly. Yes. into uh, yes. Stephen Gerrard and now into Trent and Curtis Jones. Yes, yeah. and, it, it and actually, you can see Trent in, in the last couple of years how his shoulders are coming out. It's like, yeah, I see that I'm this, you know, yeah. uh, and that's the piece I'm talking about, you know. And um, and I, you know, I was fortunate in my years, my successful years in Milton Keynes. We had a young lad by the name of Drew Spinks who mm -hmm. I had put in the team at the age of 17, who became our captain, and we won our first trophy with him. And that's exactly what he brought. Him, Leon Noel, was another captain who, who lives just down the road in, in Luton. You know, mm -hmm. And then when we got to London, <coughs> we have our captain who, who retired this past year, uh, Joey Kinwin, who literally grew up a mile from the Copper Box Arena. So yeah. without these, you can't get the culture that you want and the fans relate to. I mean, I wanted to rewind back to when you first arrived in Milton Keynes, because I am really interested in this idea of the community, because in football, the idea of teams moving places is still a very controversial idea because of that community element. Obviously, at that level of basketball, you've got less of a community already there, so it's almost like you're trying to find one. So yeah, when you moved over to Milton Keynes, I believe it was like 1998, I mean, you, you literally just become an owner of a team. <laughs> and, and you started from pretty much scratch in a yes. new area. I mean, what was all of that like? What was going through your head at that point? That was that is interesting, and and it's only when you look back at what the influences on your life are, and then you you, you correlate them with the actions you took. So, um, I was following a guy in the states called John Spoelstra. He's actually the father of Eric Spoelstra, who coaches the Miami Heat. Miami Heat. Mm -hmm. Now, John was a great marketer. And he was all about, you know, how you sell the product and why, how do you become part of the community? He was the first in America to bring TV and radio in-house into the teams before right. they got paid by, you know, ABC and CBS or whatever. But now they produce everything and broadcast everything in-house. So I learned a lot about how to sell the club, how to sell the dream, how to sell it and connect it with the community. So when we came to Milton Keynes, um, there were 16 people playing basketball, you know, literally. You know, these 11 to 16 guys got together once on a Saturday and played. The, the Shenley Bulls, they were called. Mm. <laughs> so I met with the guys, found out the lay of the land. I said, well, look, normally with any sport, as you said, over the years, uh, Liverpool, Everton, whatever, you start through the community and grow up to the top. Obviously, you can't do that in this scenario. So you've got a team right at the top. 
but you've got nothing below you. So mm -hmm. my, my dream was, okay, how do I set up satellite basketball clubs? You know, and something unique that happened in Milton Keynes, which is beginning to happen elsewhere in the country, but it wasn't at that time, was every um, secondary school pretty much was a leisure center. Yes. You see, we see a lot of that now, but back mm -hmm. in 97, 98, you didn't see that. But every secondary school in Milton Keynes was just like that. So when it came to five o'clock, six o'clock uh, on a weekday, that school became a leisure center. Everybody went home, finished the school games. And then from that time till 10 o'clock, they had to make money as a leisure center. Mm -hmm. So that, that was perfect. So I was able to basically go to one of the schools. The very first one was uh, Stantonbury School. And we set up a, a Lions Club there, you know, with young kids on the 10s, on the 12s, on the 14s. Then we went and set one up in another school, then another school. So by the time we were at our peak, we had 16 schools that all had Lions clubs in there. And each of those Lions clubs had five, six, seven, eight teams, boys and girls, you mm -hmm. know. And um, one of my key ideas that I had at the time, and I believe every club should do that, and a lot of our clubs are doing that, mm -hmm. is, you know, obviously when the senior men practice, a bit like Liverpool, they've got these reversible tops that they practice in so that, you know, if we want to go red versus white, we have to change over, blah, blah, blah. So when you joined our Lions club, you received your your reversible with your name and your number on it. And the kids were so proud of that yeah. to the point of wearing it to school and whatever else. So of course they'd wear it to school and everybody like, well, what's that? Can I come? And before we knew it, mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids. And that's how the community uh, club was built. And, you know, we went on to win the national championships at under 16s, under 18s, at colleges. And obviously we won the cup as well. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. And obviously, you really injected the love of basketball into the city of Milton Keynes. And I feel like that's something that will have endured even once you moved on to London. Obviously, the Copper Box Arena, the London 2012 Olympics being available. I mean, how much was having an arena like that available a big pull in bringing the team to London? Well, it was kind of the other way around, if I'm really honest, because I'm a passionate guy. And if I get behind something... Um, that's what I, I do. And I didn't want to leave Milton Keynes. You know, we were producing. We had shown that we could produce our own players. Now, we didn't have the best talent because you've got to go to London, Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham to get the best talent. So we didn't have the best talent, but we had a great system. We had great access to facilities. We were producing international players. So I wanted to continue doing that. And obviously, to the point you raised about moving football clubs, obviously, we have the situation with the MK Dons, you know, <clears throat> and... Uh, you know, I I, I was uh, working with the guys who were trying to bring a football team to Milton Keynes. And at the time that we came, and that was part of the reason we came to Milton Keynes, they said, we want to bring a football team to Milton Keynes. We don't know who, because at that time, they had no idea. If you remember, they talked about Luton, talked about Brent, Brentwood or Brentford, I think. You know, nobody knew. So we worked with the guys, and the whole plan was to build a 4,000-seater basketball arena adjoined to the stadium. Ah. So everything I did from a basketball standpoint was building it up so we could actually fill that stadium, you know. Um, and then, of course, the team came. They played in the hockey stadium. They built the stadium. Everything was going hunky-dory. And then in the end, you know, we were not allowed to move into the stadium. Hmm. Now, what anybody who follows us in Milton Keynes will know that we played in many, many venues, right? We played initially at the Bletchley Leisure Centre. Then we played in the shopping centre in Milton Keynes, which no one had <laughs> ever seen. Um, then we converted a warehouse into a two-court facility. We did all kinds of stuff just to stay alive, waiting for the stadium. 
So basically, once we couldn't get into the stadium, that was our legs chopped off. You know, so come May um, 2012, we were actually homeless. You know, wow. so I had, I had, you know, 1,500 kids playing basketball every weekend, nowhere for the professional team to play, all the sp sponsors wondering what to do. So <clears throat> I vividly remember this sitting on my bed, looking out the window, and all of a sudden, this sound was coming into my ears from the radio about promoting the Olympics. And I thought to myself, Olympics, Olympics. Well, if there's an Olympics, there'll be venues. Yeah. You know? So I reached out to find out what was happening. And of course, you know, 2012 was a unique turn for the Olympics year, uh, as, a, as a movement because that's the first Olympics that was driven by community impact. Yes. You know, because if you go back to Athens and some of these other places, all those buildings are just there being decrepit. You know, yeah. um, whereas some of the buildings uh, in London were built to be to be dismantled. Some of them were built to be adapted. So the, the aquatic center was a 12,000 seat swimming pool, but it was built in such a way that 10,000 seats were going to be moved out and it yeah. would just become a manageable facility. So this this intrigued me. And one of the facilities that was going to be left there, obviously, was the 7,000 seats at Copper Box Arena. Uh, and once I spoke to the company that was going to run run the program, they bit my arm off, you know. We went on to, to go there and, and and be league champions. And as I say, the rest is history. Since then, the, <laughs> the London Lions have been achieving at home and abroad. Uh, this season came the first BBL team to reach the second round of the FIBA yeah. Europe Cup. Uh, the only team to actually win games on the continent in the last 15 years. Absolutely. Uh, which Absolutely. is crazy. The last coach to do it was actually uh, Nick Nurse, who was going right. on to win an NBA title in Toronto. I wouldn't mind following that team. path. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I was going to say, it's an interesting one for you, isn't it? Because obviously you were battling him. I mean, I'm not even sure if you might have even played against him when he was... Yeah, I played game. against him. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but when you think of, obviously, bringing it back to Liverpool FC, we've always had a really important... A history with European competition and spreading the name of the, the club yep. far and wide. And obviously the achievements of Nick as well as the achievements of the Lions are spreading the game. How important is it that kind of level of achievement to kind of just put us in further people's minds? Oh, so important. So important. And that's one of the things that drove me because, you know, for me, it's, I don't, I don't know if it's worth the same with the football. I'm not, you know, I know, I know football, but I don't pretend to know it that well to the point where I can tell the differences in style, for instance. I, I know mm. formations, but <clears throat> in basketball, when you look at Europe, as I said earlier on, you know, they're, they're, they're very well advanced. You know, the Spanish league is the best league out of, outside of the NBA. You, you know, this, you know, million dollar players. So this is huge. Um, and we're a small, you know, we're the Faroe Islands, you know, compared <laughs> to some of these guys, right? Um, but... Talent is talent, you know. And one of the things with, with basketball is there's a lot more players, good players, than there are opportunities. You know, it may not be the same with football. There's a lot more clubs maybe than there are the quality players. So in basketball, all the best teams could take all the best players and there's still a ton of best players still around, you know. And, and then I decided that I felt there was a way to play to beat the Europeans. You know, what they're very good at is they're very robotic, they're very disciplined, they're very consistent, they shoot the ball excellently, boom, 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 boom. So they're very metronomic, yes. right? So if you want to go in there and do the same, they're going to kill you because they've been doing that for years. 
So you've got to find a different way, a more athletic way, a more aggressive way um, to put them off and, and get them off balance and, and beat them. And I was always looking for this opportunity because I do believe we have a lot of talent in this country. We certainly have the athletic talent, the physical mm -hmm. talent. You know, what we needed was the exposure. I mean, we kind of suffered a bit like Liverpool suffered by not being able to play in Europe with the ban. You see how long after the ban, how long it took us to, to get back yeah. to that level. Now, and we're not playing against European teams in basketball every week. So we're not, you know, sharpening the sword like that. So when we had this opportunity, I recruited the kind of team I thought could do that. Long, athletic, you know, cover the floor, um, quicker movement, all of that kind of stuff. And, and I was right. You know, you know, we beat them. Uh, yeah. And I specifically remember we played because, you know, up, up until I left the club, we were undefeated at home in European competition. Um, we had the German team come to play us. I mean, it was the top of the table. We were both the two undefeated teams. And their budget is about 15 times our budget. You know, we beat them, we beat them by easy. You know, and the guy, I remember seeing, looking at the coach in the press conference, and he just could not believe it. He just refused to believe that they just lost the game. Fantastic. Now, speaking of Germans and speaking of tactics that don't necessarily <laughs> sound a million miles away from Jurgen Klopp's yep. tactics, let's talk about the boss because you've been a leader of men yourself. And I think you're one of those guys. It's not just your ideas, it's your personality, it's your attitude, it's everything that draws people along to follow behind you. I see a lot of the same things in Jurgen Klopp. Now, obviously, you've been supporting Liverpool and seen lots of different managers. What is it, do you think, about Klopp that's been able to get everybody on side in the way he has? Incredible. I love this guy. I mean, I love this guy. His passion, you know. I think it's those kind of things that you just talked about. It's his passion. Clearly, the knowledge is there. And also, again, clearly, he's playing a different kind of game. You know, this pressing game. Um, and he's brave enough, and 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 I think you have to say the owners are brave enough to believe in the style he wants to play, because mm -hmm. you can see all the big some other big names that he could sign, but he doesn't want those guys because they're not going to play the way he wants. Yeah. You know, and that's a massive statement. You know, that's a massive statement. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, you can see it in the guys on the floor because. To give the confidence to people like Trent and 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 Robertson and so on, some of the younger players, they get clearly infused by that confidence, mm -hmm. right? And that's what leadership is about. It's about empowering people to go and get the job done, right? Yes. It's not about banging on them and banging on them. You know, it's about empowering them so they see once because once they can see, they can do, you know. And it's mm -hmm. up to you to make sure that vision is there. Um, so, I mean, I just love everything about, about what he does, uh, the way he carries himself. He's, he's every bit as entwined in the game as the players are. He's not aloof, yeah. you know, no. in, in any way. And, he, you know, and he's happy to apologize. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. You know, but I just got carried away. That's what that's what the fans do. That's what he should do. Yeah, you know, yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, you, you do strike me as the kind of coach who would potentially run on and hug someone if they just hit a buzzer beater as well. So. Oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, listen, when we won the... When, yeah, we, a couple of years ago, we won the cup at Birmingham in front of 12,000 people, and I bust out into a dance on the floor, you know, <laughs> you know because to me, that's, that's what it is. Otherwise, you know, you're just an office worker on the table otherwise, right? The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. So <laughs> has your experiences as a coach made you a more patient fan? 
So, well, you know how it is at the moment. In, That's in a the, very good point. That's I mean, very, because very you point. understand exactly what it takes and then sometimes you'll look like, what are they doing? Why has he picked that guy? And you'll be like, well, I know maybe sometimes in training, the guy you think should play didn't really do it no, that way. That's and, for sure. I mean, I get that. You know, people yell at me from the stands. Why isn't so-and-so doing this? But I've seen him in practice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. Because actually, you know, when I think obviously as, as club slowly getting everything going, you know, there was a few ups and downs and stuff. And, but, and I saw people, you know, obviously on social media, you see people getting upset at the team and this, that. that's something I never have done with Liverpool. I certainly not you know, in this period of his of his reign, because, you know, I do, I support the club. So for me, I, you know, I'm going to go hella high water with the club. So, you know, um, but I, I, I did notice it a few years ago when I saw so many people getting upset about certain things just because we were so desperate to win. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why they were getting upset. We understand that. But it's like, yeah, so is the coach. And, and so is, he's trying to do the same thing. So you've got to allow him to do that. You know, you've got to. Um yeah, as a coach, you know, there are so many things that influence results and performance that people don't see. Um, mm-hmm. And you have to take it all into consideration. Yes, it's practice as the obvious one, but, you know, it may be how people feel. You might know stuff that's going on in someone's personal life that nobody else does. You know, you might just by seeing some of the guys on the bus or at the hotel before the game, you can tell they're not ready. You know, things like that. And who's the opposition? Is it their ex-team? Is it, you know, there's so many storylines that, that are tied to people in the community that you might not know. Um, and they all influence the results, you know. Um, I'm glad to hear that because that's um, that's something that I've always suspected that there's more oh, to it than just the X's and O's. So, oh, yeah, a lot more. I mean, I, I mean we, I, I'll give you two examples. We had a player who could never play in the big games, but anybody else outside in, in our top four, he was guaranteed 20 points, no problem. Wow. So you had to factor that in as you went. So if you, you know, because obviously, you know, you might, so we play a lot of back-to-back games, like sometimes Friday, Saturday or Saturday, Sunday. <clears throat> so you've got a big game on the Saturday, but you've got a game you've got to win on the Friday, which you can win. How do you balance it up? Well, I know this guy can't play well tomorrow. So I'm going to flog him to death today, win this game with all of that, and rest some of the guys I know can perform. But when you look at it from outside, you wouldn't know why. <laughs> No, I mean, I'm, this is this is really interesting to me because now <clears throat> every time that there's a, a bit of a funky team and Jurgen Klopp does do that every now and then, I'm going to be thinking of you, Vince. I'm going to be thinking which one of those boys is not looking yeah. forward to the next one after it. Absolutely. So the next, the final question, let's wrap this up. Now, the topic of money is indelibly tied to football at all levels and business and questions around it often boil down to not necessarily just about how much you have, where and how it's spent now translating that across to basketball you spent a lifetime working across all levels of british basketball and every conversation that seems to come up about how to improve the game starts and ends with money now obviously your former club the lions themselves had a big money injection from miami uh, i believe in 2020 and beginning to start to see the fruition of that in terms of infrastructure and stuff but what are your instincts over what really needs to be done in terms of the priority areas for trying to improve the game as a whole going forward? Yeah, this, as you say, this is a <clears throat> the, the question that comes up all the time. And I've worked with no money uh, and I've worked with a lot of money. Um, so I know what it feels like in between. Um, I think the biggest things that we need uh, is what I would describe as a baseline minimum level. You know, and these are things that, 
from a football standpoint, we've had because the clubs have been in position for so long, you know, especially things like most clubs having their own facilities. Same mm. with rugby clubs, same with cricket clubs, you know. Um, if we move away from the Premier League clubs and move down to smaller rugby clubs and smaller cricket clubs, you know, they have their own facility. They have their own bar. They can have their own events. So when they host a game and they get four, five, six, seven thousand people in, all the all the catering money comes to the club. All the merchandise money comes to the club. So there's income on top of the ticket money and all these other things. So that's a baseline. So when I, that team in particular, whatever sport becomes successful that season or doesn't become successful that season, their money is there. There's a consistency level. Now, of yeah. course, that's not all the money because one one minute there's a big sponsor, the next minute there isn't. One minute there's a group, good group of players, so we need to help, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in basketball, we don't have that. So as we stand in February 2022, there are only two clubs in the top league that own their own facilities in Leicester and in Newcastle, you know? So that means they can play the London Lions on a Friday, take some money at the door, double the money at the bar, host, uh, you know, pregame meals for the sponsors and guests. Um, on the sun, on the Sunday, they can rent it out to a wedding uh, or, or whatever and get some more money. So actually, actually you've now got a solid community business that's mm -hmm. working. And that's what pretty much every football club has. That's what we missed. Now, that's a lot of money to invest on facilities from scratch. I mean, look, if we're using the Copper Box, which is a, a, a prime facility, it, it's very, very expensive to use that, you know? And we take nothing else other than ticket money and the merchandise. We don't take any, any catering money. Mm -hmm. So that's a problem on the expenditure side as to priority. On the rest of it, around standardizations, I, I believe there needs to be some minimum uh, standards. You know, minimum squad sizes. I saw. I was very intrigued to see last week or the week before the FA said um, you had to have a minimum of fourteen players to play without whether you had COVID or not. So that was actually the first time they put a number on it, yeah. right? So in our sport, you know, we play with twelve guys, blah blah blah. You know, I often have a conversation. Well, you know, how many guys should we have in a squad, and what is the minimum wage? You know, it, 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 because I don't, I, if I'm an 18, 19 year old budding basketball player, I shouldn't have to make a choice as to whether I go and work at McDonald's or I play no. basketball. No. Right. And we're not there yet, top to bottom. And and if those two things could come together, I believe the, the, the sport can explode. There, yeah, well, I'm not going to trouble you for a whole manifesto, Vince, even though I would like to hear it. And I feel like you probably could give it. But <laughs> I will, well, final thing, obviously. We don't, you don't know what you're doing yet. You're still in the same we phase for the Lions, so it's still quite new. <laughs> but, uh, one, someone who is known to both of us, uh, BBL analyst, commentator, all round good egg, Dan Routledge, he described you as a BBL lifer. So I'm hoping that you're going to stay within the game. But something else he mentioned about expansion teams. Now, we've heard the rumors of Hakeem Elijah one starting a team in Birmingham. It's been a while since we had the Toxic Tigers here in Liverpool. Is this something that might interest you, perhaps? Well, I mean, uh, I have to give a shout out to Liverpool Basketball Club because there is, there is Liverpool Basketball Club um, and, and the facilities are great in Liverpool and the talent in Liverpool and I'm from Liverpool, so that would be sensational. But, you know, who knows? At the moment, I'm taking a couple of months off, um, relaxing. I'm getting a lot of offers, you know, on the continent as well as here. Um, I'll take a deep look at it. Uh, I still believe there's a lot for us to do in the BBL. So if I had a choice, that's probably where I would be. Um, but I will take some time off because I have never 
done that basically in the last 30 years. <laughs> well, you know what you should do? You should take this opportunity to go to some Liverpool games. because That's exactly way. what I'm going to do. They're very well right now. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. As I said, I could go on about everything for a lot longer, but I'm really glad to hear that your thoughts are forward thinking on basketball because a mind like yours, we can't afford to lose. No, thank you, Mo. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. That, that's really nice. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.